Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA's Lee Rawls, and today I'm speaking with Jane M. Spinnick, author of the new book, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. Jane, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me, Lee. So you say in this book that the book you ended up writing is not necessarily the book you started out trying to write. Can you tell my listeners a little bit about your involvement with Family Court and your intentions when writing this book? Sure. I've been practicing in and teaching about the Family Court for over 40 years. I've worked on a lot of reform efforts for the court. And I believed for a long time that if more due process was used in the court and the court acted more like a court of law, that it could be reformed, that it could be revised to work like other common law courts. But the more I dug into the history of the court and understood what the original founders of the court were trying to do, as well as listening much more to impacted parents and impacted youth who today are speaking out much more about how both this court and the family regulation system overall, what we sometimes refer to as the child welfare system, but increasingly as the family regulation or the family policing system, I realized that the court could not be made into a better version of itself. That most of the attempts at reforms had failed, including ones that I had worked on, because most of the time, the belief was if we just spent more money or got more judges, this court would work better. And in fact, it's not really about the resources. It's really about the structure of the court itself. And let's talk about that. Um, I'd really like to go to, as you do, <laughs> the foundations of the family court system, talk about what it was intended for, and then what it has become. I also started reading this book with the thought that family law, oh, well, that's about custody, and that's about that's about it. I was mistaken. Can you please talk about... <laughs> Again, what were the beginnings of the court and <laughs> sure. what, what is it metastasized to? Sure. So what I call the great idea of the juvenile court, the original juvenile court, was that it was set up as a social court rather than an adversarial court. That meant that the founders believed that a benevolent judge who had a great deal of jurisdiction along with helpers like probation officers or social workers, would fix children and fix their families so that misbehaving children would behave and families who were different uh, would become proper Americans. So let me talk about that a little bit. The court was founded at the turn of the 20th century when immigration was at a high point. Most of these immigrants were poor and they were coming out of Eastern and Southern Europe. And many of the so-called child savers, the reformers of the time, wanted to turn those families into what they thought of as proper Americans. So they wanted to fix them. And at the same time, they were unhappy with the way in which children were treated in criminal proceedings, and they wanted to move misbehaving children into this court as well, again, to be fixed, but also not to be treated like adults. And we still believe that. We still want to keep children out of an adult criminal system. And I do, too. I want children to be treated differently. I don't believe we need a separate court for that. And I also don't think that courts are places in which to fix families. 
So let me talk about the very beginning of the court. It really, there were really three categories of cases. The first was delinquency, what we know of now as delinquency as well, when children commit acts, which if they were an adult, they would be charged with a crime. The second is dependency, what we think about more now as neglect and was thought about then as parents being, for whatever reason, unable to care for their children. And the third area is what we now call status offenses. And that's when young people misbehave, but they're actually not breaking the law. So they're running away, they're truant, they're not listening to their parents. They're doing acts like that, which are would not be a crime if they were an adult, but as children, it is considered now a status offense, but for the first 70 years of the court, it was also considered delinquency. And let's talk about who these reformers at the beginning were, because I think there's also a through line there. For their time, they were well-meaning, upper-class, middle-class white people, for the most part, who were so instrumental in creating these. You do talk about the tremendous efforts that Black activists and, and child savers tried to weigh in and modify the system in ways that would not be so harmful to Black children. But there was absolutely a race component, and whether that was people worrying about the Eastern European immigrant children or the Black children, there was always a certain demographic who seemed to be mostly in charge. Am I right in saying that? Yes. The court was begun in the big cities. Chicago had the first court and many of the other large Eastern and Midwestern cities began courts in the first decade of, of the 20th century. At the time, they were mostly so-called white child savers who were concerned, as I said, about turning these immigrants into proper Americans. They also did, to be fair, care about child labor they wanted to stop. They wanted to create nurseries and parks and recreation for the immigrants who were filling up the tenements and the neighborhoods in, in these large cities. So it was people like Jane Addams doing Jane work. Jane Addams, absolutely. And her co-founder of Hull House, Julia Lathrop, who then became the first director of the Federal Children's Bureau and became the first woman to, to direct any federal agency. There were many fewer Black children at the time in the, in the North and the Midwest. And there were almost no juvenile courts begun in the South during this period. And as the juvenile courts moved into the South in the 20s and 30s, Black children were not sent to that court. They were mostly continued to be treated as adults and with adult punishments. And Black parents, particularly Black mothers, were not considered suitable for the assistance of the court. Interestingly, the Black activists, particularly the women in the Black women's clubs in the first few decades of the 20th century, worked hard either to have Black children considered worthy of going into the mostly white family juvenile court. And they also at the same time had to protect those children because even when Black children were allowed into the family courts, the juvenile and children's courts of the time, both in the South and later in the North, they were still treated 
more harshly than white children. They still got harsher punishments. In the South, they continued to be punished by convict labor and whippings. So the the Black activists in the South were trying to do two things at once, both protect the children, but also get them the services that might be available only through the family court. One quote you included from Professor Cheryl Butler really struck me so much I, I made note of it, and it was, the society from which the juvenile court emerged had already equated Black neighborhoods, culture, customs, and families as synonymous with delinquency itself. I would love for you to talk a little bit about what resulted from that attitude. I think hopefully everyone listening knows about the disproportionate impact that family court and you know child protective services have on minority families, but would love to hear you talk more about that specifically. The interesting thing, and I don't think I realized it until I dug so deeply into the history, is I think many people today think that disproportionality is a new thing, that the disparate impact of these systems on children of color and also on on families of color is is something that happened in the last part of the 20th century. What I found most fascinating was how this disproportionality, once these families came into the family court, that disproportionality was there from the beginning. And Interestingly, the reports that were done both by the white child savers and by the black child savers, as the historian Jeff Ward calls them, did studies showing the exact conditions that we are worried about today. And that was, for me, so eye-opening. It was that Black children and families did not have the same housing opportunities, did not have the same work opportunities, did not have the same health treatment available. And there were reports as early as the 1910s, which really quantified how every bad condition for Black families had an impact on the number of those families who found themselves in court. So after, for example, there was a report called the Colored People of Chicago in 1913, and what it said was, even though Black families made up one-fortieth of the population, one-eighth of Black boys and one-third of Black girls were confined after going to the court. The same thing was true in New York. There were several reports after the race riots that occurred in New York, which showed the same thing. Those children were disproportionately brought to court, and what the reports called for all through the 20s and 30s was what we're still calling for today. Better housing, better health care, better nursery schools, better child care, that these things were not available to the Black families in New York. And even at that time, those reports said, this is because of racism. And so it isn't like, oh, now we're saying it's structural racism. They were saying in the 20s and 30s, this is because of structural racism, segregation, and the lack of equal opportunity for Black families and for Black children. In addition to the racism, I think that... Today, another thing we need to look at is, is the classism. There was a report from the Children's Bureau in the 1930s uh, that you made reference to a couple times in the book. And this quote struck me. And 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just read it. It is doubtless true that many children of the well-to-do are saved from coming before the courts because their families have greater resources and are often able to obtain special care for their children, whereas the children of the poor are more likely to be referred to courts or committed to institutions when they develop serious behavior problems. And that's certainly been true to my lived experience. One of the instinctual reactions I had to your suggestion of abolishing the family court was, well, what about child abuse? You know, how how could we deal with, with child abuse where the court system not there? And then I thought about, okay, well, the people who I know as adults who experienced abuse in their childhood, were they helped by the court system? No, they never came into contact with it. Their families were not of a demographic that would come into contact with the court system. No one came for them. No one helped them. No one saved them. So that already isn't working if we're, if we're only focusing on certain classes of people. Well, family court has always been a court for poor people. Even the purpose of it at the very beginning, the so-called social courts that were championed by people like Dean Roscoe Pound were to control the lower classes who they didn't want in the regular court system, that their problems weren't important enough. And if they needed to be fixed, it could be done in these specialized courts. So it has always been a court for poor people. And just like the racism that has been documented throughout the court's history, so has the classism. There are many examples of the quote that you used by others who said, this court is never going to have within it people of means. And instead, we, we want to deal with them differently. So how does that work out? Well, obviously, people who have enough money are able to buy the assistance that they may need, or they're able to hide. They are not the people who are surveilled by this, the, by police, by school systems, by child welfare systems. And that was true then. And it's true today. It's not that parents of means don't harm their children. It's that they're not brought to court for it. Many of the critics of the court said, you know, if they ever were brought to court for acting in in ways that we think are dangerous to children, we wouldn't have this court anymore. So that's been a through line from the beginning of the court. But I also think it's important to understand that it's not just that we brought poor and predominantly people of color into this court. It's that by bringing them in, we didn't provide them with the resources in the communities that might have been able to prevent whatever it was that they were being charged with. So let me unpack that a little bit. Not only are are most of the people poor, but most of the reports about these families are about some aspect of neglect. Neglect has been correlated very much with poverty, but also the other inequalities that I was talking about before, not having childcare readily available so you end up leaving a child home alone, not having sufficient income to be able to feed your child sufficiently, living in, in housing that is not safe. And, and often is public housing. So it's not only it's not safe, but it's the government who's not keeping it safe. And yet the individual parent is being punished for not having proper housing. So many, if not most of the kinds of cases that, that are both reported 
and sustained are about neglect. There are, of course, 20 to 25 percent of cases that involve serious and life-threatening situations in which we need to respond in a way that protects those children. No one just wants to say, well, we're not going to protect them either. Of course we do. There are many ways to protect them. And I would still say that that taking them away from, from their families is probably, is not the only way to protect them. Certainly keeping them within their, their extended family would, would be much better than putting them with strangers. But that's not mostly who finds themselves in this court. And most of the families who are in this court for so-called neglect or abuse would, would, with proper services in the community, be able to raise their children well and in the ways they want to and not be brought to court where it's really important to recognize the court does not have the capacity to make sure families have those things. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers. When we return, we'll talk about the judicial system within the family court. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C. And get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and I'm still here with Jane Spinnick, author of The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. So Jane, one of the really interesting things about the family court system and your book is you describe the difference in thinking between judges in our regular court system and judges in family court. And there's some interesting medical parallels um, or or medical metaphors used uh, when it comes to being a judge within the family court system. Let's get into that. Okay. Well, at the very beginning of, of the court, many of the judges used a medical model that they were going to therapeutically treat children and later their families. They, they sometimes describe themselves as equivalents of physicians and their juniors, juniors being the probation officers they were working with who were treating children. They also sometimes said that the reason they had to use punishment was as a moral tonic so that children would understand that their punishment was not punishment. It was, it was instead a way to improve them and to make sure that they were healthy. So that medical metaphor has always gone through the discussion by judges uh, up until today. There are, there are examples 
of judges saying, we're, we're like emergency rooms. We have to deal with the families who come in and we're, our job is not just to make a legal decision, but to be an advocate, to be a, to be able to take care of children and families who find themselves there. And that, of course, is entirely different than what a common law court does, because this is not a neutral decision maker. It's someone who is taking a real discretionary approach to what they believe their job is in fixing these families. You have a really interesting line when you talk about one way we can rewrite our assumptions about what family court should be. And one of the things you say is that judges are not best suited to be leaders of problem-solving teams. And I'd love to hear you expand on that. Sure. The original court was thought of as problem-solving. And the idea was, and remains today, that a judge with sufficient jurisdiction and discretion could, with the help of probation officers and social workers and psychologists, figure out on an individualized basis how to either treat the child or treat the family. In the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century, we had a revival of so-called problem-solving courts, drug courts, veterans courts, truancy courts, and they're all built on essentially the same idea, that if we bring people who need specialized help into a court system, that just like as in the family court, whoever is part of that team is going to make sure that the person or the family gets fixed. And in the the very beginning of this modern problem-solving court movement, I thought that was possible too. But the more I was involved in it, particularly around drug treatment parts in family court, the more I became aware that this is just rehashing what the, the original juvenile court was doing. And we still don't have proof that it's the court system or the judge who is successful in helping let's say, a mother who is in drug treatment. We don't really know why it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. But what we do know is if we had that treatment readily available in the community, that mother never would have had to go through this system or most of those mothers. And so... It's a way there, there is a, one of the original critiques of the modern problem solving courts called what they were doing judicial theater. It makes judges feel good to think that they're solving people's problems. And, you know, the, the idea that you keep bringing someone who is addicted or a parent who is having a drug problem back to court over and over to make sure they're following the rules does have an element of theater to it. Court should be determining, has this person in some way either broken the law or in the case of family court in in the family regulation system, has their behavior so harm their child that we need to bring them into court. It doesn't mean that you want a court that is then going to impose a a problem-solving approach that gives the court tremendous discretion on when those child 
children remain with the family, when they're taken away, and when they're allowed to go home. You had an interesting sentence in the book where you talked about how it turns out discretion, while you know we granted it to judges and the, the family court, it, it sounded like a good idea. You know, the, oh, judges will have the discretion to, you know, not apply this in, in cases where it may not be helpful. But discretion ends up being at the root of so many of the abuses of the system. Could you give an example or two of, of what you mean? The examples of discretion that I think are most shocking to me today and why I think reform is not possible are examples of judges who are so convinced that they know what to do and what's right that they don't even bother to follow what law there is around delinquency or around family regulation. So let me just give a couple of examples. ProPublica did a report on a judge in Kentucky who decide, she calls herself the mother of the county. She is white. Almost all the children who are arrested and brought to her court are black. She allows children as young as seven and eight and nine to be locked in detention while she decides whether they have committed some crime or not. And these are seven and eight years old, year olds. She allowed children to be arrested for watching a fight at school and had them locked up. Eventually, they were released, and the county ended up having to settle a lawsuit by the families for, for what she did. But I think what's really important for, under, for us to understand is she had that much discretion that she could do it, whereas a judge who did not have that kind of discretion would not be able to do it. In the 2010s, during the Obama administration, the Department of Justice studied several family court systems. They were looking particular, the DOJ was looking particularly at delinquency systems. And in multiple jurisdictions, they discovered that the family court was acting just as it had before the Supreme Court had made its decision in Galt that children were entitled to lawyers and had made other due process decisions about what constituted due process in juvenile or family court, as if those had never occurred. They were not making sure children had lawyers when they were brought into court. They were allowing children just to waive their right to a lawyer. They were detaining children. They were shackling children. And they were getting away with it because they were under the radar. Because in some jurisdictions, you still have no access to family court, the public or the press. And even when they do, it's so difficult to get into those courts that, you know, these judges continue to treat them as fiefdoms. So those are just a couple of examples of the extent to which a court given that much discretion can ignore even the due process requirements that are supposed to be in place. We're going to take a quick break to hear from advertisers. When we come back, we're going to discuss the solutions that Jane Spinnick sees possible. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I am still here with Jane Spinnick, author of The End of Family Court. So Jane, let's talk about what options there are to approach family court with an abolitionist mindset and what solutions there could be to the problems that 
we had wanted family court to solve? It's a complex answer, so uh, I'll try to take it in a couple of steps. At the beginning, I told you how I was influenced by impacted parents and youth caught up in this system. And I really want to highlight that because I do believe that these activists have changed how many of us think about the the overall family court system, but also about the family regulation or family policing system that is referred to as the child welfare system, but doesn't actually protect children. So I believe that as a first step, we need to be led by these families and by these activists to understand what they see as solutions. So many of my solutions come out of work that I have done as an ally to these impacted families and the activism that has come out of that. The second thing that I think is important to understand is that what I believe are the most important reforms are the reforms that are going to go on in communities. Earlier, I talked about the reports that span the entire 20th century and now into ours about what families actually needed. And what they need, all families need, are the kinds of of supports that we've been talking about all along, housing and good schools and good medical care and good mental health care and good substance use treatment and child care, all of the good schools, all of the things that many families have in this country and many families do not. So, so much of our resources go into keeping systems that take children away from their families going, but don't put that money into the communities. I just saw a report that said in 2019, about $31 billion was spent by states, localities, and the federal government to keep the family regulation system going. And that half of that paid for out-of-home care for children, $15 billion. Imagine if we took $15 billion and put it into communities, how communities could thrive. There may be some listeners who are thinking, oh, this sounds pie in the sky. What are some concrete examples? And I just wanted to share one that I know of from my own life. Uh, I grew up near Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, which is also the home of the you know, state's biggest public university and a couple hospital systems. And I worked for a place called the Crisis Nursery, which is still operating. And what this is, is a, you know, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, There are staff members there who care for children from birth through five years old. And it can be because you had an emergency situation. Let's say family's passing through town, family gets in a car accident, mom and dad are hurt, children are fine, but they need someplace to be while we wait for family members to come pick them up. It could be that. It could be you know, mom is suffering from terrible postpartum depression and she needs Respite. Uh, Respite care was a big part of what we did. Uh, There was a system where, say, you know, single parents every two weeks could have one 24-hour care period where they would drop off their children. We would feed them. We would play with them, make sure that they went to bed and were cared for. Uh, It could be a job offer came, but you have no babysitter. And all you need is three hours to go take that interview and come back we would care for your child. It could be you're the mother of five children. And how do you clean a house 
to the standards <laughs> of CPS <laughs> when there are five children in it. So we would take the children for the hours that the mother would need in order to clean her house. So Okay, that's perfectly. And situations happen, yeah, for every yeah. family um, demographic. That can happen. Emergencies Absolutely. can happen. Absolutely. And your description is similar to a program called Strong Families, Strong Communities in North Carolina that was piloted in a very similar way, but also engaged the larger community into seeing that they had responsibility for all children. And so you got businesses involved and you got the firehouse, the, the firehouse opened up as a place where kids could play, or you had a business opening up a toy library where children could come. You had volunteers who would sit with parents and talk to them, not in a way that parents were worried they were going to get reported, but in a way of how can I help you think through something that's going on in your life? I think it's important for us to recognize that in the 90s, the United States Advisory Board on Abuse and Neglect said, our system is a disaster. We think that reporting children is going to help them, and it doesn't. What we need to do is to support children. And as long as we have created a system where all we're doing is reporting children and families and sending them into court, we failed. And so what we need to do is, like the, the example that you gave, like the example that I gave. But I also want to talk about some of the other concrete examples that I use. And there were six of them that you called out that I especially wanted to mention. I'm just going to read all six. You can elaborate. First is to eliminate status offenses. Second, create a much smaller juvenile legal system. Raise the minimum age of responsibility. Raise the maximum age of juvenile legal responsibility and limit transfers to adult court. Number five, limit crimes that bring youth to court. And number six, improve due process protections. So feel free to elaborate on any of those. Sure. I, I do want to add, though, that there is a second part to, to my recommendations that are more around the family regulation child protection system. And so I, I think what I'd like to do is talk about the status offenses first, because I think it's so representative of the problems of the court, and then talk a little bit more about um, family regulation. So status offenses, as many people don't realize, used to be part of delinquency, as I said earlier, and now are a standalone jurisdiction in family court, where children who misbehave but do not break the law can still be brought to court. Like it's not a it's not a crime to be disruptive in class. It isn't. And it is not a crime to run away. It's not a crime not to listen to your parents. It's not a crime to have underage sex. It's not a crime to, you know, hang out with your friends. <laughs> But all of these things, depending on where you are, might bring you into court as a, as a status offender. So as I said, this used to be part of delinquency and it was believed that by separating the two, those young people who are just misbehaving won't be treated as harshly as children who actually commit crimes or are found to have commit crimes. That wasn't true for most of the time that status offenses have been in place since the 1970s. And it is more true now. So we are doing much more diversion work so that 
young people who are misbehaving don't end up in court. And their numbers have dropped substantially from about 200,000 young people at the beginning of the century to to probably slightly fewer than 100,000 now. So it's a perfect time to say, why are we even bringing these children into court? Yeah. The kinds of... I would also love to just mention, we understand so much more about brains and neurodiversity <laughs> yes. now. Speaking as a kid exactly. who... I also didn't know why I couldn't sit still in class until much later when I was diagnosed with ADHD. You know, there's right. so much of what used to be considered a child being morally bad or, right. or just the way their brain works. But also you probably weren't weren't sent to the principal's office and maybe arrested. I was not arrested. For having ADHD. No. And But children are mm-hmm. every single day. And as we've been talking about throughout the whole time, children of color more and girls, we have always wanted to control the behavior of girls. I just have to give you one quote because it's my favorite quote of what um, a woman who ran a training school for girls, which included just girls who misbehave, said, Our chief task and aim with delinquent girls is to protect them from the natural consequences of being girls. I I just love that because we don't want to protect them from the natural consequences of being girls. We want to help them figure out how do I deal with the natural consequences of being girls because everybody's going to be an adolescent girl everybody's going to be an adolescent boy. They're going to test limits because that's what you're supposed to do when you're an adolescent. But only some of us get in trouble for it. And unfortunately, it's those young people who are most closely watched in schools and also by by law enforcement and, and child protective services. So I did lots of things that could have gotten me into family court as an adolescent, but lo and behold, I didn't find myself there. My clients who used to do the same things that I did, did find themselves there. And so, you know, I probably feel more strongly about status offenses than anything else, because we should not be bringing children and youth into court for misbehaving but not breaking the law. Instead, what they need is what all kids need. After school programs, good recreation, job opportunities. They don't need to go through the court system because once they go through as status offenders, they are more likely to stay there in the juvenile legal system. The other part that I do want to talk about is is how we narrow the definition of abuse and neglect. We have such a broad definition that pretty much any parent at any time could be brought to court for somehow not caring properly for their children, but they aren't. Again, it is families who are most likely to be surveyed by the government systems that exist in their communities. And there have been recommendations since the 1970s into the early 1980s and right up until today, which have said, we need to narrow this jurisdiction only to those families who we are so concerned about the physical health of the child that only issues like sexual abuse, significant physical abuse, or the kind of neglect that is so extreme, like starving a child, that we have to intervene. That most of the other reasons why children are in court could be taken care of with good services in the communities. So many families 
find themselves there because of mental health issues, because of substance use issues tied as well to poverty. Why do we want to bring families into a court system for those reasons? What we should be wanting to do is to make sure that their communities have those supports available so that families don't have to be destroyed because only about a half of the children who end up going into foster care go home. The rest of them either linger in foster care or have their parental rights terminated. Some are adopted, but many age out of foster care. About 20,000 children a year age out of foster care without a legal parent, not a birth parent, not an adoptive parent, and are left on their own. This is not a system to support families. And that's key to, to my book is that I want us to have a system that supports families, that learns from families, and that allows families to find the supports they need within communities and not be destroyed through court systems that have never, and I mean never, been proven to help families. Well, Jane, thank you so much for coming on the Modern Law Library to talk about your book. It's so rich. There's so much we didn't get to. For example, the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which I you know, urge people who are interested, pick up Jane's book, The End of Family Court. You can learn more about that. But this is our time. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show to speak about this. Well, thank you, Lee. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I hope you listeners enjoyed this episode as well. You can find all of our episodes at abajournal.com slash books. You can reach me at books at abajournal.com. And if you're interested in finding out more about issues regarding children and the law, the ABA Journal is currently running a series, Children and the Law, that you can find at abajournal slash children and the law, all one word. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Law Library. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.